Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. The Sambodhi Sutta. Um, so this, this is a sutta now where we're getting into what what does Dhamma practice look like? What, what are the immediate results of Dhamma practice? <clears throat> and notice a key theme that runs through the Buddha's Dhamma and this sutta is the importance of, in the words, of having admirable friends in the Dhamma. That means that who you practice with and what you hold in mind as far as the Dhamma is concerned must be wisely associated with the actual Dhamma itself. You can have all the wonderful friends in the world, and I have plenty of wonderful friends in these different Buddhist centers that I went to, um, but there was nothing there that could lead me to the awakening. And so, in, in relation to the Dhamma, they were not admirable friends. That doesn't mean they weren't admirable people and, and, and admirable human beings. And we have to be careful when we're listening to this that we don't use the words against the Dhamma. So some people will read that and say, well, that's such a harsh judgment. I don't want anything to do with having to see people as, as less than admirable. But that's not what the Buddha is saying. He's saying in relation to the Dhamma, we must, be, we must choose those associations, associations very wisely. And it's the same that, that um, personal association with another human being in the, in, in the Dhamma is... Um, it both a metaphor and the practical example of what I'm associating internally as my Dhamma practice. In other words, a wise Dhamma practitioner is someone who reflects the Dhamma and not just my own desire for some type of connection with someone who thinks the way I do, which is what I found in, in most of the practices that I had. It was a wonderful community of like-minded people, except as far as the Dhamma was concerned, they were, they were disadmirable only because they didn't understand the Dhamma. They were wonderful people. The Buddha was at Anathapandika's monastery at Jita Grove. He asked those gathered, Friends, if those of other sects would ask you, what are the prerequisites for developing the wings of self-awakening? I love that line, the wings of self-awakening. How would you respond? The monks and nuns asked the Buddha to tell them his response, so in their words, they would remember it clearly. The Buddha responds, listen closely then. The prerequisites for developing the wings to self-awakening are here for you. It's such a powerful declarative statement. They're here. They're within the Dhamma. They're here, and they're here for you. That's why they're here. That's why the wings of self-awakening have been established by Siddhartha, Siddhartha Gautama. For us. They're here for you. They're available to everyone. The first one that the Buddha starts with is having admirable friends and companions. And, of course, in the context of the Dhamma. Remaining virtuous and restrained and understanding the danger of even the slightest faults. That's referring to keeping the Dhamma pure. That's the, the fault would be practicing something that isn't related to the Dhamma and, call, or, and calling it Dhamma practice. Or and any other slightest fault. Such as thinking that I can get away with BS and because I don't want to... It extricates me from a situation. Well, the, the thinking that needs to be changed 
and will be changed through the Dhamma would never leave you in that position that you need to BS. And if you find yourself BSing, even little white lies, as people say, it's, it's, it doesn't mean you should stop immediately because sometimes that's a, you, you can create great trouble for yourself and others. You need to practice discernment there too. But it's a sign that you're not quite done. Even the slightest transgression is what the Buddha is saying. Even the slightest little white lie. You know, when, when I first sobered up, I didn't know the difference between... I, honestly, I could not tell the difference between the truth and a lie. I had so many lies out there. And I remember talking to a sponsor, someone who helps you along in the beginning of, of sobriety, for those that don't know. Simple explanation. Um, and I remember crying, literally crying to Bob, saying, Bob, I don't know how... I've been lying for so long. I don't know how to be honest. And tears were falling out of me. And Bob was this huge guy, a little bit bigger than even Larry, and he scared the hell out of me. And so anything he said, you know, you know, if he says, go look at a petunia, I'm going to start shaking. He says, if you want to be honest, be honest. And that one statement hit me like a ton of bricks. Because it was the one thing I couldn't figure out on my own. And the, the one thing I couldn't do on my own was the obvious. And the, 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 the Dhamma is the same way. It's the one thing we can't do on our own, which is be honest with ourselves. We continue to fabricate. And we, we support our fabrications through our associations. And, we, and whether we're in Dhamma practice or we're just trying to practice a certain political point of view, we all do it, or any, any kind of view. We all gravitate to associations and friends and associates that validate the views that we're holding of ourselves in the world. We all do it. And that's not freedom, by the way. You know, think about that. It, certainly it's not freedom that I'm clinging my beliefs and my way of living in the world to what other people are thinking. There's no freedom of thought is there. Because every time you or they change their mind, there's conflict in my mind. And I'm, and I'm left, again, wondering, what the hell am I doing in this world? And if any of you have followed a, a certain teacher, as, and, I'm, and I'm not putting this down, this is just a common occurrence. I'm just thinking if I should mention a... a no. I was going to mention someone because they're, they're, they're well-known... And they teach in a very warm and welcoming way. And their, and their core teachings have changed dramatically over the last 20 years. And so, as, as someone who's following them would have had a wonderful 20 years of this type of practice. But they would have spent 20 years not learning the Dhamma. That's fine if that's what you wanted to do. And I was caught up in situations like that too. But what I found was that these wonderful people that are so engaging to listen to and follow and read their books. The one thing I was missing, and I saw it, and again, I'm not going to say the places, but you've all heard me say the places I used to study and the people I used to follow, so you can make those connections. It's, it's, it's wrong speech for me to make a direct connection now, and this is the reason why. It's because when I was in those places, it was my associations that led me to believe as I'm sitting there and listening to things that made no sense to me at all making me more and more confused, taking me further and further and further away from Four Noble Truths, even though I didn't realize it. It was because of my associations and my vested interest in those associations that made me say, put it on me that I didn't understand. It put it on me that I looked out and I see nobody seems to really understand what this guy's saying. I didn't, I, it, was, it was on me and it wasn't on what was being taught. And until I had the framework of the Buddha's Dhamma to wait what was being taught against this, as the Buddha's teaching in the Sutta, could I make any sense of the nonsense? And I was able to extricate myself. 
But this is the sutta that describes it so well, and it's one of the reasons why I keep it in here. Because it's so obvious that this is what we need to do. Let me just come back to the beginning after that little speech. Having admirable friends and companions. Remaining virtuous and restrained and understanding the danger of even the slightest fault or transgressions. Hearing easily sober talks and talks conducive to learning and gaining understanding. Hearing talks on modesty, contentment, the value of seclusion and quiet, non-entanglement, persistence, virtue, concentration, discernment, and knowledge of true vision and release from craving and clinging. What includes those talks on a regular, ongoing basis? Talks related to the suttas. Because the suttas all relate to just that. And, it, and the suttas talk about compassion, not in a, in a conceptual way. Like, let's, let's all talk about compassion and share our experiences with compassion. Because all we're doing, and that, that could be a wonderful evening of friends, just talking about compassion. But in the context of the Dhamma, it's merely conceptualizing something we should have a direct experience of. And in the conceptualizing of it is the association. So now we're associated with a concept rather than a reality. Even though the concept of compassion, you could say is closely, closely associated, there's that word, with actual compassion because it's conceptual, there's no substance to it. It's like foam on the water. Does everybody understand that? And having that experience of compassion as a concept is the same as having an experience right now of the joy and wonder of establishing myself in Tulsita Buddha's heaven when I'm dead or any other type of, of, of non-physical self-establishment. It's the same thing. It's an unwise association to, to associate ourselves with even the slightest fabrication. That's what the Buddha's talking about, the slightest fault. And the reason why I'm teaching this now is it follows the three classes on fabrications. So it's not, the slightest fault isn't just a white lie. That's pointing to the idea, the under, underlying motivator to that little white lie is ignorance. Or I couldn't, it, it's not possible to fabricate in a mind that's, that isn't provoked by ignorance. You know, the Buddha describes his awakening as there's nothing left within me to provoke another moment of ignorance in his life. You see the delusion. You, you see, yes, and you understand, and the, and the Buddha would say, you understand the value in eliminating even the slightest transgressions rather than the idea as we're developing the Dhamma, and I hear this all the time and you've all felt it, of clinging to maybe just the slightest transgressions because of what they give us. I'm not quite ready to let go of them. That's fine. If you're not ready to let go of something, take a breath and, and, and realize within the framework of the Dhamma that it, that time will come as long as you Dhamma practice. But when you're ready, have the courage and have the tenacity to say, yes, this no longer serves me. What is it? Flip Wilson. Get, get thee behind me, devil. Flip Wilson. I think of things like that. I don't even know even why I even say them in Dhamma class, but those are the things that I think of. But that's how the attitude we should have. When we think about those things about ourselves, the fabrications and the, and the loose associations we have with fabrications. Get deep behind me, devil, because that's what it is. It, it's the devil of our own creation. And as long as we cling to the association, that devil is going to be creating havoc in our, in our life and in our minds. Um, remaining persistent and abandoning unskillful mental qualities and developing skillful mental qualities. What do we know what are skillful and unskillful mental qualities? 
How do we know that we're harboring unskillful mental qualities? Because we're engaged in wrong speech, action, wrong speech, wrong action, and wrong livelihood. And what's the what's the antidote? Right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So the Buddha's teaching this to a group that already knows what you're doing to develop this. It's the excuse me, it's the eightfold the eightfold path. And he shortens that up with resolute invite effort. Yes, the, the conclusion to that statement, I didn't thank you, Ron, is resolute in right effort. And of course, right effort is the effort to maintain the Buddha's Dhamma. Furthermore, for one developing the wings to self-awakening, they would maintain discernment and understanding, an understanding of impermanence and the cessation of stress. What does it mean to maintain discernment and understanding of uh, of impermanence and and, and the, the cessation of stress. Relate that to dependent origination as the Buddha takes us through from ignorance all the way through those 12 causative links of suffering. And in there, he makes a direct reference to this too, doesn't he? And I read it again. They would maintain discernment and understanding of impermanence and the cessation of stress. Remember when, I, when you heard the Paticca Samapada Sutta and the Buddha first teaches how we go from ignorance to the birth of stress in our lives. And then he takes us in, in the Paticca Samapada Sutta. Others. He takes that process in reverse order. Where we are rooted in ignorance, meaning now we are now established in stress as a result of ignorance. And we simply, he describes reversing that process in a direct way. And what's that process? The reversal of, of stress and suffering is the abandonment of associating our minds with fabricated ideas that often manifest as, as associating with people who are a, a, a validation of the fabricated idea. And, you'll, and most of these people are wonderful human beings, as most human beings are. So we don't have to go to the point of, of deciding, in order for me to disassociate my Dhamma from that person, takes the Dhamma. I mean, we have to understand the difference between acceptance and approval. For me to say that person does not validate the Dhamma for me, is not an indictment of the person. It's simply seeing reality. And it allows us then to leave another person in peace. So you could say that, that I could be hateful of all the people that taught me Buddhism and taught me something other than what the Buddha actually taught because of all the time they stole from me and all, all the, the money that I donated to, their, to that stupid cause, that ridiculous cause. That's on me to think that way, isn't it? Because each and every moment that I spent there, I have deep appreciation, even if it's just for the sincere fabrication that the person was, was portraying to me. And you've all heard me talk about my fondness for some of these teachers, and I still feel that way. Even though you could say they, waste, they wasted my time, but they didn't waste my time. I wanted to be there. It was my choice to waste my time. And I wasted my time because I was so strongly associated with my idea of, of that particular practice. I was associated with an idea of a practice that could not deliver what I wanted. I was associating with a fabrication. I was associating with a pig... What's that saying? I was associating with the silk purse that was developed out of the cow's ear, out of the pig's ear. I didn't see the pig's ear anymore because of my own association. And I'm using a little bit strange um, associations to make the point that these are the things that we do Ultimately, internally. We notice them externally. And as the Buddha is teaching here, 
we notice them finally in these very nuanced and subtle ways. As we take to the Dhamma, we first address the gross issues. It's almost like recovery from drug addiction or alcoholism or any compulsive behavior. Before that can take place, before we can move to a, to a more comfortable level of sobriety or, or non-compulsion in our life, we first have to accept the fact that we are addicted or compulsed about something, right? We have to begin where we are. And this is where this teaching takes us to. It's, it's taking us to an uncomfortable place for many of us. Look at your associations. Look at the people the, and the ideas and the thoughts that you associate with. And this is where the real challenge of the Dhamma comes through. Again, and it's where we need to great gentleness. Because it seems like we're judging the people that we love the most. Um, I had a conversation with a really good friend over the last few days about just that. that what do you do? And, and, and it was more about just that experience of people challenging you because of the Dhamma took in effect. I had the same conversation with a few people. When the Dhamma takes you to a place of common peace that is often interpreted by other people as a lack of caring and even aloofness, that happens to all of, all of us at times if we're practicing the Dhamma out in the world. And all that we can do is say, I found a way to stay in common peace in that situation that you're describing. And people may be interested in it or not, but we maintain that common peaceful mind by maintaining that disassociation, which is at times difficult for us. The Buddha continues. When one has admirable friends and companions, it is expected, expected that they will be virtuous and restrained in this most important aspect of the Dhamma, seeing danger and even the slightest faults, the slightest transgressions. When one, the Buddha could say, so you see, when one has admirable friends and companions, it is expected that they will hear sober talk and talks conducive to gaining understanding. Why do we only talk about the Dhamma and the Dhamma as it relates to suttas because the Buddha told us to do that. He said when you're talking about the Dhamma, it's not conducive to the Dhamma to listen to that wonderful talk that Mark Epstein gave last week. Mark Epstein is a modern Buddhist teacher. He gives brilliant talks on, on psychology as it relates to Buddhism. But it has nothing to do with the Dhamma, so we don't listen to it here. You're, and, and you may have it as part of your practice listening to... to Mark or Pema at times, but that doesn't matter as long as you keep it clear in your mind that it's not Dhamma practice. It's wholesome. It's wonderful to listen to. It's not Dhamma practice. When I, when I read some, a, a poem pops into my head and I pick up the author's book again just to read it again because it, 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 it helps clarify my thinking, which is really, I think, what poetry really should be for. But I understand it's not Dhamma practice even though it, it provides some benefit to me. I don't have to classify it as wow, I just found another little aspect of the Dhamma. No. I like to practice the Dhamma, and it also leads me to, to more behavior that is more easily associated with a mind that's awakening. But that doesn't mean that those things need to be associated with Dhamma practice either. Is that clear too? Because we can, we can, we can then create, and I've seen this happen, I even did it with myself, created things that I saw as Dhamma practice that weren't, simply because I developed them as, uh, as a consequence of my gradual awakening. And uh, an example might be, I've, I'm changing my diet now that my mind is calmer and I'm seeing things clearly. And so I start looking at things and maybe, maybe uh, chemically produced food is not good for me to eat. That's a thought that came to me from, through Dhamma practice, through clear, clearing my thinking up, up a little bit. 
So me changing my diet to cut out to only eat organic meats, I'm just using an example, is an important thing in, in, for me to do. And, and it's a healthy thing for me to do. But it's not Dharma practice. And even though I do it, you never hear me talk about my diet in here do you, as, a, as a factor of, of Dharma practice or the other changes that I've made in my life as a consequence of Dharma practice. Why? Because they're not Dharma practice. They're the natural changes that I made. And that's what the Buddha's talking about here too. These things that are a burden to us prior to Dharma practice simply fall away as a consequence of Dharma practice. What I'm saying here is there's no loss of disassociating our, ourselves with things that we're clinging to with authentic Dharma practice. How do we know we're, pra- we're, we're doing that? Is when we're being gentle with ourselves. And we know that we're not practicing the Dhamma as it's meant when it seems harsh in that way, when it seems like we're giving something up. Take a breath and look at where your fabrication is in that situation and come back to the sutta because it'll tell you. Let me continue. They will hear talks on modesty, contentment, the value of seclusion, and quiet. They'll hear talks on non-entanglement, persistence, virtue, concentration, discernment and knowledge of true vision and release from craving and clinging. When one has admirable friends and companions, it is expected they will maintain discernment and understanding of impermanence and the cessation of stress, meaning that the environment you've now created will always conduce towards that. Once these, once these qualities have developed, there are four more to develop, uh, to develop. Contemplation of one is unattractive so as to abandon craving. A good example of that is the Buddha's um, description in both the Satipatthana and the Anapanasati Sutta that modern Buddhism has taken a meditation of. And I'm talking about, the Buddha talks about the contemplation of the charnel grounds. And I think every, every, almost every school, at least I'm not sure if everyone, um, made a meditation out of this. When the Buddha talks about it, it is, he says it's a contemplation. Think about it. Don't meditate on it. It's two, contemplation and meditation are two different things. But if we're, if we're prone to um, putting any type of quiet mental work, we'll call it meditation. So we've, we've we created contemplative meditation. Again, contemplate contemplative prayer, and we call it meditation. It's a Christian practice, by the way, for those that don't know it. And the, the people that practice contemplative prayer are free to call it meditation. Dharma practitioners would know that that's not meditation as taught by the Buddha. And so when the Buddha is talking about contemplation, he's certainly not talking about meditate on this. He's saying, contemplate the charnel ground. What is he saying? He's thinking about, think about that thing that you're so enamored with, your form, your physical form, that thing that you're clinging to. Think about it. Think about how disgusting it is. Think about what happens when you're done with it. It starts rotting. It starts oozing pus. This is the Buddha's word. And he's teaching it in this very direct, and you could say disgusting way. He's saying birds pick at it, and wolves clamor after it, and pick it, pick it to the bones. And he's very descriptive. Why? He's trying to teach us to be disassociated with that body by, by pointing out in a very obvious, and some people would say harsh, but in this sense it's not, in a very loving way, look at what you're so enamored with. And some people will say, well, you can't look at yourself that way. Yes, it's a reality. But the Buddha's not giving us just one look. He's not saying you should only look at yourself in a, as a rotting mass, because he doesn't do that, does he? He gives us an eightfold path that, right from the get-go, gives us a vision of where we're going. 
to right speech, right intent, to live a life within right speech, right intention, right action, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And I can live each and every moment guided by that. I don't have to think about what the hell am I doing anymore. Is this the right practice? Is this the right meditation for me? Why the Buddha always says, keep looking for, the, for where the practice is working for you. Why I keep saying, why we talk about it here in class. Do you see it working? Do you feel it working? Do you see that practice at the moment of restraint? Because that's where your association is. Wise restraint is at that, that place of, uh, of where, we're, uh, where we think our, our, our admirable friends and our admirable associates lie. And when the tension is present there, we know that's not it. That's not the case. That's something to recognize and abandon. I don't want to go too long. The Buddha continues, goodwill should be developed so as to abandon ill will. Again, I talked about I couldn't, I, I could not be an honest person. My whole life, I wanted to always be a person that was imbued with goodwill and only treated people with goodwill. And yet time and time again, I failed. And I hated myself for it. And literally, and we all do. Most people don't understand when they, and they strike out at people and they hurt those they love the most. We feel awful about it. it the, the program that I talk about the most as far as the, the, the recovery community is the AA community. The, the key component of that, we, and Larry and I talked about this earlier, excuse me, Larry, for what I just did. And people cannot get past that unless they do that in some manner. Not everybody does it the same way. We can't move on in Dalman practice until we make peace with the fact that we've hurt people. And, we, and I talked about this a little while ago in depth, and I've mentioned it a few times. The first time we as human beings, and it, it, boy, somebody wants to hear the Dhamma badly. Um, the first time we did this uh, as human beings, and, and this is when we're children, when we're first, usually around four or five, when we're s- first beginning to get a sense of, of self-reflection, and that usually doesn't come to, to a self Reflective view, usually does that manifest until you're eight or nine. That's when, and you notice that's when kids really start acting out. Most of them, unless you're like me, and you start acting out at one. But um, I had an extreme self-centered view. So around five, five years old, you're aware of your behavior. And usually at that time, you start getting feedback that means something to you. I mean, in my case, I started getting feedback in the delivery room. Uh, and again, I'm not saying parents don't give you feedback, but it usually starts, doesn't really make sense to you until three, four, or five. So let's say five o'clock for the sake of argument. So you're five years old and you first start understanding the ramifications of behavior and you do something that really hurts your mama and you feel awful about it. Even at five years old, you might try to make believe that you're not hurt, but you're hurt by it. And it's the first time you realize that you did something and you don't even know what you did that hurt your mommy so bad. That's conditioned thinking. You now condition your mind to be afraid of your own behavior. And that conditions every thought from that point on. You are now afraid of, the, of what you might do in the world because inadvertently you just hurt, hurt the person you most love them. And I can, I, and I bet you all of you, I can remember the a thing that I did to my father that was so awful. I didn't mean it the way I meant it. It was out of anger and frustration. But it was such an awful thing to do. But I didn't mean it. I had lost my mind. But we do these things, don't we? And we do them, why? Because we've lost our mind. Because we have these, these, these terrible expectations we put on people as well, that they should be different than they are. Um, and so I, I, I took this 
I had this behavior against my mother that hurt her and hurt me. The hurt that it did me was masked almost immediately by the, by the external discipline that was necessarily to be applied to me. My parents had a role to bring me up, and they did it right. I'm, I'm not making a statement against, against discipline. It was necessary. But it also reinforced something in me that I did something wrong. I'm going to cry a little because it, it's, I see it happen so often in people. Inadvertently, I did something that hurt. It hurt the world. And great intention reaffirmed it in me. Are you following me, what I'm saying? The world, through the, through the role of my mother, acting exactly as she should have within the system we have, inadvertently reaffirmed how awful I was. When I, I'm using extreme language now. What an awful person I was. And I didn't even know what the hell I did. Am I making the point? Can you understand that mind yes. that did that? And that, that's the mind that we carry on. I said earlier today, to Larry, when we first take to the Dhamma understand what the Eightfold Path gives us, and we understand the ramifications of right speech, right action, right livelihood, the liberation is the knowing that now, finally in my life, I'm good to go. The next moment, I'm not going to cause a harm. And up until that time, when I've actually done that, I was carrying that hurt around with me, in my case, for 60 years. And I almost said 60 effing years, because they are effing years when you're carrying that kind of hurt around. And it's that kind of hurt that leads to things that we see of this mass violence. Because that, that poor little boy doesn't understand why he's so mad at that black guy that won't listen to him when he's arguing with him to, to, to sit down, lay on the floor. And he explodes out of that thing that was born when he was five years old and kills that poor man. That's where it comes from. I'm sorry, I'm getting so excited about this. Maybe it's 24 hours of Dharma talk. That's why we need to address our associations. That's why we need to look at things we don't want to look at. Because it addresses the things that we created in ourselves, that we're responsible for, that creates the distress in us. That little Johnny carried around didn't know what the hell was wrong with him. What was wrong with Johnny is he hurt someone and he was afraid of doing it again. That's the same pain that every human being has. And I'm crying because that's what I feel when I look out in the world now. When people... I didn't intend for this to be this intense today, but I knew I could. When newcomers to the Dhamma... And again, everyone has experienced this. Have that first initial <clears throat> of an understanding of where the Dhamma is taking it, taking it. Doesn't it feel like self-annihilation if I let go of all these things, if I let go of the eye-making? And it does feel like eye-annihilation. But you're just letting go of that rotten little shit that didn't know how to act. You're getting them out of you for good. And once you do it, he can never rear his head again. And you do it with gentleness. You do it with kindness. You do it with great love for who you are. Because you finally realize, through understanding association, that you carried that little boy with you for your, for your entire life. You made him feel safe and loved while he was tormenting you. You know the saying about you got two wolves, you got a good wolf, or the two dogs... 
the good dog and the bad dog, which one do you answer? This is the same thing. Because our whole life we're talking to the good dog and the bad dog at the same time. And the bad dog saying, don't do it, don't do it. Larry and I, I asked Larry this great question. I said, what's the most important thing you ever learned in business? And we talked about it a little bit and Larry gave this, this incredible answer. The ability to make a decision. That's what this is about. The ability at the point of contact, at the, at the point of, of, of mindfulness, restraint, right, refined mindfulness, that's where we make the decision. I want the Dhamma. I no longer want to carry that crap around with me. You've heard me say over and over again, we had a nice conversation at breakfast the other day about self-loathing. That's what I mean. As soon as I, I, I did that at five years old, I was, I was full of self-loathing. And I carried it around with me out of that fear that I'm going to hurt my mom and I'm going to hurt myself again without even, without even knowing it. There's, there's, no, there's no control in the mind like that either, is there? That's why we feel, and that's why we get to the point, I hear it every, every newcomer, I feel like I have no control over my mind. I have this monkey mind. It's, the, it's that first thing, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm making claims here that are unfounded too, I'll, I'll admit that. From my experience in looking at the Dhamma, these are the conclusions I came from. It's that mind that initially became disturbed by the harm it caused another human being that is now distracted moment by moment because of its concern that it might happen again. And it's always going there. And so we create these crazy concepts in our life of what, what life should be like so that we don't do that. And that leads to the idea that now that I've hurt people, I have to find a way to save them. That, 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 that common human problem, and it's a recognized psychological disease called the Messiah Complex. Let me continue. I know we're going to get through the sutta. Good Goodwill should be developed so as to abandon ill will. Mindfulness of the breath in the body should be developed so as to develop non-distraction. That's what the Buddha taught Jhana to develop non-distraction. It's the only thing he ever taught for meditation. Why? For non- and again, he teaches us right here. Our minds need to be non-distracted, well-concentrated, so that we can see our associations, so we can see what we're clinging to. Concentration alone will bring that. Well, I shouldn't say that. Concentration and the framework of the Eightfold Path will allow us to see that. They should, understand, they should develop understanding of impermanence so as to uproot conceit, so as to uproot eye-making. Again, people have such a, so much difficulty with, how do I let go of all these fabricated views of, of, of myself? And I hear it a lot from people, and they should, they should be asking me, that's my role. And I'm not saying that like I'm, I'm bothered that people keep asking me. No, it tells me that they're looking in the right direction, and the answer is in impermanence. Understand impermanence, and you'll cease eye-making. That sounds crazy. Like It sounds like they're disconnected. There's no connection between impermanence and, and eye-making. But it's all because of impermanence that we, we eye-make, isn't it? Because things are changing. Because that five-year-old, in that moment, in that instant, everything changed, didn't it? And the grasping after was, how do I live in the world without hurting people? Constant eye-making from that point on. And it's masked and hidden that eye making, and I think I've made this clear maybe for the first time, it's hidden in the distraction that that mind is creating, isn't it? Every thought to mask my own faults is a distraction, but it's rooted in, in my own salvation, isn't it? And it seems reasonable. It seems, it seems necessary. 
And because I see it in myself and I think it's for myself, I also then put it on other people. We all do that. We, always, we put our own things on other people. And so now I need to save myself and I know how to do it. And guess what? I just figured out how to save the world. And now that I'm the savior, blah, 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 you, can, you, you see what happens with a mind like that. And it never ends unless something happens. This is what Siddhartha understood in the Nagara Sutta. Unless something comes along to interrupt that thinking that began as an infant. They should develop understanding of impermanence so as to uproot conceit and end further eye-making. Understanding impermanence. What are the three marks of existence that we learn in the Dhamma that this whole structured study is about? The impermanence of all things and not self-characteristic that develops because of that misunderstanding and the stress and suffering that results from from a misunderstanding of the first two. Four, at least to this, for when one understands impermanence, clinging to anatta, to fabricated views of self, clinging to not-self, is abandoned. That's the Dhamma. For when one understands impermanence, clinging to fabricated views of self is abandoned. It's that simple and that direct. Understanding not-self, understanding what we've created, a fabrication, understanding not-self uproots conceit. Another way of saying that is understanding I'm making uproots I'm making. I'm just going to read this again just for effect. For, for, one, for when one understands impermanence, clinging to anatta to not-self is abandoned. Understanding not-self uproots conceit. Unbinding arises in this moment at the cessation of eye-making. Like the Bahia Sutta that we're going to get to, I think, in the next class. And when one has seen the five clinging aggregates as they really are, the arising in the... This is also from the Arahant Sutta, but it's included in this, but you'll remember it from that. And when one has seen the five clinging aggregates as they really are, the arising and the passing away, form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness. It's all impermanent, yet that is our personal experience of suffering. It's what little Johnny built when he was five years old and screamed at his mommy. That was the manifestations of the five clinging aggregates for me in my life. When, one, when I really see that as it really is, the arising and the passing away, understanding the attraction and the distraction, not just the attraction and not just the distraction. Lorna was so good on this because she, she always talked about, she saw that as a, in, in, the breath as a metaphor. The in-breath is the arising of phenomena. The out-breath is the, is the, dis, the dissolution the ending, the cessation of phenomena. And we experience all phenomena in every breath, don't we? The arising and the passing away. And, and it's important to recognize the arising and the passing away. The Buddha's pointing, out, pointing it out right here. As they really are. The arising and the passing away of the aggregates. Understanding the attraction and the distraction. Seeing the arising of desire and continued delusion and being delivered from these five clinging aggregates. This one is released from clinging. All defilements are destroyed. Greed, aversion, and deluded thinking are destroyed. What must be done, has been done. He's referring to the Eightfold Path, obviously. Perfection is attained. It's the only time the Buddha uses that word perfection. Because an awakened human being has achieved that perfect state of awakening. That state is a subtle and uh, dynamic state. But all suffering is gone, as the Buddha points out. The burden has been put down. What's the burden? It's the burden of self he's referring to. The burden has been put down. The highest goal achieved. 
This one is, has been liberated by perfect insight. That's Vipassana. That's true Vipassana, as the Buddha used the word Vipassana. True introspective insight. What a remarkable sutta. Um, and I hope my, my rather lengthy commentary didn't take away from the sutta. But, and my, my, um, I know somebody getting excited about a subject could be off-putting. And so I often try not to get that excited. But this, this, is, this has such meaning to me. <laughs> Here it comes again. Because this sutta teaches, speaks to the to the just the very essence of what we're doing here, and again, I, and just to make that point. So when I look out on the world today as it is, and I see the things that are happening, I don't need to list them again. We all know. I had this. I, you heal. You you can feel my uh, my emotions come up to me sometimes, especially towards the end of a retreat. I never made it to a treat, retreat without crying, <laughs> although it's always my intention. What I'm feeling is, is really feeling the sadness of people that, that are still stuck in that five-year-old. That's what I'm identifying with. That's, real, that's unity consciousness because it's identifying with something that I know and they know. That's understanding. We understand our suffering because we've come to grips with it ourselves. We under, I understand you because I first was able to understand me. And at, at the, I, I, I understand your suffering because I understand the suffering I imposed on myself beginning at you know, whatever that age was. And that's where true compassion, that's where true empathy comes. And, and that is wisdom, isn't it? Wisdom is only acquired from, from my own experience. There's no wisdom in reading Socrates, is there? Or there's no wisdom in reading uh, a biography of Steve Jobs. I might get a lot of intellectual knowledge. I may even be inclined towards wisdom. But wisdom can only be Wisdom can only be shared, and something that can only be shared must be owned. And ownership means you own it, you know it. Okay, that's two classes today, so there'll be extra money in the basket at the end. I'm gonna, I, I promised, you didn't remind me, but I promised the last class I'd start in the back. So. Oh, you did last time. Oh, that's right, I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I already said it. So. Do you want me, should I start in the back, or should I start no, on right. that? Um, I, enjoy, I enjoyed this sutra. Uh, Thank you, John, uh, for teaching it. It's just a reminder of... Uh, I like it because it's true. It, it it speaks a lot of truth. You know, even when we were children, our parents always told us wise associations. You know, be careful who you associate with. And, yeah. and here the Buddha is is confirming it even more so. Yep. And you can actually see it because it, it makes sense that you. I don't know. I I find it more enjoyable to be with people like minded like myself. It's difficult for me. I yeah. I, I kind of feel out of place when I'm in the the world, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 do, I do have a lot of compassion and um, I have a lot of understanding and more patience because of the Dhamma. Especially yeah. like when I associate with the children that I work with and things like that, yeah. you know, yeah. in society. But um, the time that I cherish is time like when, especially being with Michael and, and I together at home, we're always talking. We're always mm-hmm. speaking about the Dhamma. It's always, the Dhamma is always there. Where it's, 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 it surrounds us, it's, it, it's within us, it's, you know, it's, it's part of our life. So it, it makes it very special to have, mm-hmm. be able to travel with somebody through life like that. That's a, so that's I, a so good really, example. I, of a, I really appreciate that, yes. It's such a good example of a wise association. It and, is. And having an, an admirable friends. You know? Exactly. You both do, you fulfill that, that requirement very well. So it's really wonderful to see, too, how you are both together in the Dhamma.
Thank you. Thank you, John. Hello, Michael. Hi, John. <clears throat> um, I look at uh, what you had mentioned before. Oh, uh, could you like, open uh, Rob, could you open the door a little more? Uh, well, we, Thank you. Uh, just on the page before you ended there. Furthermore, one, for one developing the wings to self-awakening, they would maintain discernment and understand understanding of impermanence and the cessation of stress. And you were asking, you know, you were tying in the, uh, the penta origination with this, and I do believe uh, maintaining and clinging is the, uh, what's that, the, the ninth link in the independent origination. So the Buddha's saying here to, you know, maintain discernment and understanding and basically remove uh, clinging and maintaining to yeah. wrong view, so to say. So that's where I would draw uh, a parallel there. Yeah, that's good. That's right. Also, I want to ask you uh, uh, well, a couple more things I want to say, but we're not in a rush of time. We can stay here till right Yeah, we'll, we'll be here at midnight tonight on this. this <laughs> All right, the other thing I want to uh, ask you or run this by you, and uh, I was thinking about it, isn't the ego self a false dharma? Oh, I see, and that's a great way to put it. You know, the the it? ego is its own dharma, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So I just want to run that past you. It's the religion of me. Mm, exactly. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned being salvific at one point in your dissertation there on, on your early uh, childhood. And also with that, I noticed uh, in just me uh, trying to tie things together, it seemed like you had a, a, a great deal of empathy for this five-year-old child. Mm. And to this day, you still have that empathy. Yeah. And, and, and my, I'm sorry to interrupt you, and, and, and it's because of that that that's what I really, I'm feeling it for, for all the kids in the world, including the, the 70 and 80-year-old kids that are, you know, it's oh, all of us. We all, we all, I mean, I'm just pointing out wrong, but it, it is all of us, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Can you do that on your own? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to Remember Trump when he was dancing? Oh, I love that. <laughs> I just love that. Well, let's not go there. Oh, no, I, I, I couldn't help it. <laughs> uh, the other thing I want to uh, bring up was, again, with empathy. Everybody knew that, too. Okay? Uh, we talk about, like, empathy and compassion. And Julie and I had a discussion about empathy and compassion some time ago. And Julia researches everything, so when she talks, <laughs> I listen. You know, sometimes I should listen all the time. But Julia she uh, had drawn like you know, like there is a distinction between empathy and compassion. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, empathy is, and like I even tell this to my my own daughter, who's she's a nurse, uh, uh, a very busy nurse actually in, in, in New York, and uh, she has a lot of empathy for people, and she feels yeah. their pain. And she suffers because of that empathy. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the difference there between empathy and compassion is, is like, I believe that like you're suffering from empathy there. And compassion is recognizing the pain that that little boy was suffering, but realizing that you have to look at that from, from right view, that situation yeah. right view. And you have to see the suffering of that child but not entangle yourself in it because then you're suffering also. Yeah. Right. Yep. It, it, you're, that's that is right view, and, and so you're, you're. We learned that 
empathy and compassion are two different things. Empathy is more the 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 understanding of of in this in this sense uh, suffering, and compassion would be the act the acting out of that understanding. You know, and and and, and that's what we that's what we feel. That's what we start gaining that that understanding of understanding four noble truths. We gain an understanding of distress and suffering that's in the world, and it is through that that we can be truly empathetic, compassionate, and wise at the same time. And with just two of those things, we create an awful lot of havoc in the world, don't we? Acting out of empathy and compassion without the wisdom. Because it's, it's, it's looking out on the ills of the world that creates that, that group empathy that says we've got to do this and we've got to do that before we're ready to do it. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Admirable friend, how are you? Thank you for joining us tonight. And, uh, it's always great to have you here. Yeah, well... Wonderful to be here. Thank you for that, John. Pleasure. And thank you for all the time you've been able to give me on this this, this trip over. It's been wonderful. And uh, <clears throat> I think you know a few things sort of struck me by by this particular teaching. And I, one is 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 the reminder that you brought several times how subtle things are. Yeah. And it, and it is, and, and, and because they're so subtle, it's very helpful to have somebody who not only appreciates that, but then can explain it in, in a clear way, and, 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 and to do so in a heartfelt way, in an emotional way. Um, yeah, it's uh, one of the beautiful things when, when people do connect, it's oftentimes because they relate. And, uh, yeah, so it, it allows people to come in when, 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 you, when you, you know, when you're touched that way. And it's, and, it, and it's, and it's honest. It's, we talked about that too, which is, a, you know, I, I, I tell people all the time that, you know, it's, that honesty is the key that unlocks the door to all the things I want. And so... To be dishonest, which I had a, you know, I had a, I, I perhaps like you had a PhD in dishonesty, mm -hmm. and you know, I, I lied about everything, even things I didn't have to lie about. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, so I, I think that you know what, I, what I, it's been my experience that when I am honest, you know, it does you know lead to this trust thing, and mm -hmm. it's wonderful to be trusted. And then beyond that, you know, it's the intimacy starts to develop. I feel like I'm, I'm I feel sitting here with a great deal of intimacy with the people in this room, yeah. um, and that's because I trust them, you know, and because they're honest with me. And uh, you know, and, and then I and then I always think about that next thing, which is you know what I think we all want. In various different degrees, but you know, it's it's what you know, it's to love and be loved. Yeah. But it, it, it's the key that unlocks the door to that whole that whole process is, is honesty. And uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. I could just go on and on and on about you know so many things here. And, and it, it, but but it, it is uh, just to go back to the first is it is this it, it's so subtle so many of these things. And, you know, it's, and, and, and because of that, I just want to repeat that it's so wonderful to have 
you know, not only you, because the last retreat I went on, there are others here yeah. now that are teaching it as well. And, you know, I was so happy and so pleased and grateful to experience that too. You know, and um, yeah, so I just want, I, some, you know, I understand you have, have a group now in England, and I'm trying to think how we're going to move this French town sangha out to Bridgehampton, New York. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to do it via Zoom. But they're, they're already talking about having a retreat over there somewhere, too, so who knows? We might be doing a retreat in, in, yeah. in, in, well, in, in, in cross, the Cross Pond yes. Meditation <laughs> Center. Is yeah, so anyway, First thank you. <laughs> thank you, Larry. Again, thanks for coming out today. It's always a pleasure. Brett, how are you doing? Good. Good to be here. Um, <clears throat> really enjoyed the uh, sutta and your teaching and what everybody had to say. Um, the, the thing that sticks out the most, I guess, is the you know disso you know, you know dissociate or so with 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 people that you're associating with, like the, the ignorance and stuff like that. And uh, I guess right speech, I think, really perpetuates it and keeps it going. And uh, I realize that when I'm around a group of people that I've been with, uh, you know, you, you start, somebody starts talking about somebody that's not there, and then all of a sudden it just, you know, then I'm, I'm like, why am I in this conversation? This is not going to help me at all. Yeah. Um, so, in, in all aspects, I think it's important not to, you know, for me to do the, you know, mm -hmm. dissipate, you know, have right speech, and, you know, less ignorance and, and uh, all that stuff, so. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Always good to have you here, Brad. I'm glad you're here. Hello, my friend. Hello, John. An another admirable friend. Hello, everybody. With a great shirt. Thank you. I got my uh, Hawaii vibes today. Yeah. Shout out to Meg. There you go. <laughs> you see the shirt? Yeah, if I move on, I'll get back in. Um, thank you for the beautiful teaching, John. Good. Thank you, Matt. Hello, Jen. Hi. Um... Yeah, you know, it wasn't until I, I, I've been hearing, you know, wise associations, birds of a feather, since I was, you know, pre-verbal, and, but it wasn't until I engaged in the Dhamma that I knew what a wise association was. Yeah. And even now, I don't know that I could verbalize it in a way that would really do it justice other than to say that a wise association is, an unwise association is someone who distracts me, and a wise association is someone who reminds me to come back to what's happening. Yeah, and, and so in, in a wise association would naturally have to be someone that knows the price, knows the dollar. Well, right, right. Yeah. Thank you, Jen. Hello, David. Hello, John. Have a good time. Thank you. Glad you're here. Hello, Kevin. And John. Nice to see everybody. Um, just thought of something as you were just talking there. You know, it's as we practice the Dhamma, we notice our associations, you know, we do maintain our wise associations, however, we also wisely associate with the world, and, and you know, it, 
if we, you know, we have to, we have to be in the world. So we have yeah. to maintain our discernment, our calm, our concentration, and that leads to us acting virtuously. And and when we do that, we're uh, like we said, we know we know we're in the right. We know we're good to go. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate that tonight. Thank you. There's a Dhamma teacher. Thank you, Kevin. Hello, Ron. Oh, John. Um, hmm. Yeah, we, we did talk about the, the, the self-loathing uh, the other day at breakfast. And actually, you brought it up before as well. Yep. Um, and I have a bit of a reluctance to, to, to see it as, uh, as universal, although I'm starting to realize that, that yes, at these, at these really young ages, we do get these very visceral emotional experiences that we, that we carry audio? around for a yeah, long time. Yeah, me too. Um, right, well, hold, hold, hold on, maybe I hit something. I kept, I was like changing speakers and you that and Yeah, hold, hold on one minute. I'm trying to put it. <laughs> hold on. Are we on? I think he's pointing at one of us now. Yeah, just wait, like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Give a thumbs up, hold on. We're, we're low. <laughs> <laughs> Tricky dick, we lost the mic. Uh, I'm, I'm playing games here. We just off the distraction. Did you plug it and unplug it? Uh, let's try it up. Can you hear me now? Hold on. Hello? Yeah, we got it. Okay. Well, you hear me? We got mics. Okay. Uh, Rob? <laughs> Um, just yeah, in time too yeah just to um, I'm not quite sure if, if I follow you all the way into the, the self-loathing part being the, the universal part um, but I do think there, there are very strong emotional reactions that happen at an early age that we carry along for a long time but it may not necessarily be self-loathing there, there may be uh, you know, in, in my case, it's probably more a deep fear that, that, uh, that kind of... A deep fear of what? I don't know. But there, there is a fearfulness in me, and I, I recognize it looking back on my life, that, that a lot of that was, um, was pushed by, by a strange sense of fear um, that had no, real, had no real object to it. But if you were having that, if you were having that feeling, it means that somewhere within you, you felt you were not in control or, or strong or powerful enough to protect yourself, and that is again using the word loath, loathsome yeah. might be might be too strong of a word for some, but that is an aspect of looking at myself, saying there's something missing, there's something lacking in me, mm. and and again to just to put a general term maybe for the purposes of teaching, that's self-loathing. Mm -hmm. And whenever I think that, there, that there's something that's not quite right, that needs to be added, something needs to be changed, there's something bad or broken about me, that, that's, that fits the definition of the word. Mm -hmm. And so to, it just, again, as a teaching tool, I think it's, it's the perfect word because it describes the whole gamut from a minor disappointment, which is still self-loathing, to intense hatred that might have me self-mutilate or something. Right. It's, all the same, it's all the same thing. The, the degrees are different. Mm -hmm. But the intention, the underlying cause, is the same. It's just something's wrong with me, mm -hmm. and so now you better believe it. Yes, yeah. sir. I will After give all that, more thought. 
<laughs> Thoughts about emotions. Now, did that, that does that help bring some clarity? A little bit, but I I want to I want to dig it some some more uh, and, and see where I get to it. But thank you. See you, Jen. Thank you for being here. Yeah, that's what I love about you. So. <laughs> Just on Rom's point. Yes. Isn't this where, like, our past lives? There's nothing we can do about our past life. Okay. Yep. We lived it. Whether it's right or wrong, we live it. Like I said, you suffer from it. Rom suffers. We all suffer from it, right? I don't think there's many people who don't. But it's that point, like, when I think of like myself, it's easy for me to get angry at myself or feel some some emotion arising within me. In, in relation to focusing on. But as I understand, as we go on and we learn the Dharma, as it meets us where we are, then I also understand that like, I have to, I have to have compassion for that not-self individual that took up a large part of my life, you know? Yeah. So. Why wouldn't you? And if I don't, and if I'm not having that compassion, then I'm not gonna get past mm -hmm. these, whenever they come up, these disruptions in our minds from yeah. past, past conditioned uh, actions or feelings. Yeah, it, it, you, you, again, you hit the nail on the head. Isn't it interesting that it took an awakened human being to tell people that, if, that you need to stop being so selfish and the way to do it is to take care of yourself. Stop beating yourself up. Yeah. Right. It becomes take easy care. to put down. But the uh, he, but where he's taking us in that very subtle distinction is from not self to a self. It, again, it it that alone says that most people didn't teach what the Buddha taught because most Buddhist practice resolves itself into emptiness or nothingness, which is annihilation. Isn't it? If that's true, annihilation. But you know, the, the Buddha just said. What we are is a self, and it's all we can ever be as a self. It's the opposite of that, that type of nihilistic thinking. Thank you, Michael. Hello, Meg. Good to see you. I said, what was I going to say? No, I can't say good to see you anywhere. Hey, good to sense you. <laughs> it's really good to be here. Thank you, John. Um, I really appreciate the sangha. And this, um, this lesson really speaks to my feelings about that. Yeah. And... Um, for me, um, I kind of think of uh, associations that I've had in the past and that I have now. Kind of think of it as um, uh, either I'm moving toward truth or I'm moving toward anatta or not self. And yeah. that basically is a reflection of, um, I guess, distraction. Yeah. And, and or clinging and craving, right? So if I'm hanging out with people that aren't really helping me move toward the truth, um, then then I must be trying to distract from something for some reason. So um, so I think that's what what I usually look at in those situations is yeah. Why? hanging out here you know <laughs> and I found myself in situations like that before you know when I'm in a group of people oh, yeah. I'm wondering like why am I here I you know and I and I just keep clinging in to the situation thinking it's going to change it's going to get better it's you know <laughs> yeah and then it, you know and finally it, it all comes back to me yep 
And, and there, you know, there's, a, there's another subtle aspect of it. When we put a lot of time in any activity, it's called a vested interest, we are prone to continue that just because of that vested interest. You know, I already put my time in. You know, keep going. But I, I'm, I'm so glad you joined us, Meg. And I promise I'll get back to you again. Okay. I'm not going to give you a date, though. <laughs> Within a few days. Thank you. Anthony, how are you? Well, good evening, Doug. Good evening, everyone. Um, I, uh, I, when I remember when I first heard this talk, it, it was a great time for me because I realized that you know, there were, it was happening for me. Like, there were some associations I had with people that I just didn't feel I wanted to keep up. Yeah, I remember and you so talking about that. It makes sense to hear this. And, you know, some of them were unskillful or um, they weren't serving me or it was like you said, it was like foam on the water. And, um, and some of them, you know, related to, I realized were just, associations I developed to try to validate myself. Yeah. And, you know, that, that happened, it made me, when I heard this suit talk, it made me realize that this is just a natural part of this development. And, you know, that it's, it's not bad to want to spend more time with people who are like-minded and, and appreciate the Dharma. Because otherwise, you're not, you're, you're not progressing. You know, and, and isn't the whole point to progress down this path? Like, it's not a, it's not a question of yeah. being selfish. It's, it's really more a question of, it's really more of just realizing certain things, like having a light couple off and saying, you know, no, I don't want to be part of the negativity. Um, and, and you are an off-putting, when, when you showed your emotion, you know, if I could be there, I would have wanted to jump through the laptop and hug you. You know, because, and it actually reminded me that some of the, you know, these associations to validate myself go back to early upbringings that I had where certain things made me feel I'm not, I'm not unworthy. Yeah. You know, so I developed associations that try to make me feel worthy. And when you recognize that, it's just beautiful. Yeah. And, and, the Dharma. yeah and again, you're describing an aspect of self-loathing, aren't you? To, to think that I need other people to make me worthy is, is also rooted in that, that self-loathing. There's something, there's something missing in me, that person corrects it. And again, we, we, we tend to do that with relationships anyway. We hear it all the time that, you know, that person completes me. Well, you know, I, I, I don't, when I hear it, I don't like to hear it because it's, it's not a completely healthy situation, is it? No, other, no person can complete another person unless you're missing something. And nobody's missing anything. You know, nobody. Yeah. Now, good to see you, Anthony. Yeah, Hello. It's kind of a relationship based on, you know, I'll love you as long as you do what I want. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Maybe that's why we have an over 50% divorce rate, because that's kind of what happens, isn't it? You know, we can put up with yeah. a person for a while, and then they stop doing what we want, and now, you know, there's, there's nothing of value there, or worse. So. Thank you, Anthony. Jane, how are you? I'm enjoying the company of my admirable Sana friends. <laughs> well said. Um, and I do appreciate the story you told of the five-year-old John yeah. and how you carried something that happened, you know, through through most of your life. And uh, I can relate to that, you know, just yeah. carrying yeah. some things. We all can. My own making, you know, my role in the world and not wanting to disappoint. And, and uh, it was all my own creation. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you, Jane. And, and you know, you can 
that that thought that I don't want to disappoint, that's, a, that's also a healthy and wholesome thought, as long as you don't run with it. But ultimately, we, we got we to heal, heal that, you know, I don't want this to sound like I'm talking about we should heal our inner child, because there's a whole, there was a whole movement that began with that. Um, and there are some good things about it, but there's some, there are some things that you could really take too far with that notion, uh, overemphasizing the broken self to the point where you can't fix it anymore. And if you keep breaking something, breaking something doesn't fix it. Deconstructing the problem doesn't fix it. What the, what the Buddha taught fixes it. And we've seen it. You know, we, we, we all... Eh, forget that, that train of thought. Um, I just practice right speech, by the way. <laughs> Shall we ring the bell? <laughs> yeah, we should. Um, just so you know. Well, let me tell you what I was going to say so you know what I... Uh, <laughs> this, I, I, again, I, I don't like to get that excited, but I really don't have any control over it. There's too much control. Once, it, you know, once I make that connection to the suffering in the world, that's how I feel. And I never had that before. And it's actually quite a wonderful feeling, but it's so personal that... And, it, and it, I'm not saying I wish it didn't happen. It's entirely appropriate. Um, and I don't know what I'm saying, except that I hope that when I get that excited, it doesn't put anybody off. Because it just means that I'm feeling it, baby. <laughs> uh, so we're going to continue with this, uh, with our study on Tuesday. Tuesday, we're going to have uh, two suttas, uh, including the Bahia Sutta. But concluding this. So the rest of this, with, with some exceptions, exceptions, uh, the rest of the study is more about what it looks like and what it feels like rather than actual practice. But we're going to add the Upada Sutta to this at the end and you'll see how that fits in nicely and uh, describes some things that we don't often touch on. Uh, we'll finish with uh, Meta as we always do. I don't know why I'm playing with my camera. My phone because that doesn't feel We're finishing with metta as we always do, the Buddha's words on metta, and I always like to remember every now and then. This version of metta was uh, translated and um, I would say really, really cleared up uh, by the Amaravati Sangha in London. I mean, they're still there. It's, a, it's actually, if you ever go there, it's a good place to go. They're not pure Dhamma. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a really good, I mean, it's probably. I bet Yamaravati's got to be 600 years old, at least. Really? Yeah. Oh, not important. The Metta Sutta. Because Amaravati came from, um, I believe, from Sri Lanka, and they used to make the... And they say that the Buddha, in disincarnate form, began spreading the Dhamma, or the Dharma, as they say, uh, in disincarnate form in Sri Lanka. That's the first place he went. And then they, there is a saying that the Sri Lanka, original Sri Lanka monastery is what ended up in, in London as Amaravati. Might be true, sounds good to me. The Buddha's words on Metta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, 
Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning, this evening. Peace. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Good to see you. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.